Welcome to episode 129 of Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. I'm your host Cassius, and together with our panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the ancient Epicurean texts, and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book Epicurus and His Philosophy by Canadian professor Norman DeWitt. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com, where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. Today we continue in Epicurus' letter to Pythocles, and we look at the implications of the Epicurean position on the size of the sun. Now let's join Joshua reading today's text. The size of the sun and moon and the other stars is for us what it appears to be, and in reality it is either slightly greater than what we see, or slightly less or the same size. For so too fires on earth, when looked at from a distance, seem to the senses, and every objection at this point will easily be dissipated if we pay attention to the clear vision, as I show in my books about nature. The risings and settings of the sun, moon, and other heavenly bodies may be due to kindling and extinction, the composition of the surrounding matter at the places of rising and setting being such as to lead to these results, for nothing in phenomena is against it. Or, again, the effect in question might be produced by their appearance over the top of the earth, and again the interposition of the earth in front of them, for once more nothing in phenomena is against it. Their motions may not impossibly be due to the revolution of the whole heaven, or else it may remain stationary, and they may revolve owing to the natural impulse towards the east, which was produced at the beginning of the world, by an excess heat owing to a spreading of the fire, which is always moving on to the regions nearest in succession. The tropics of sun and moon may be caused owing to an obliquity of the whole heaven, which is constrained into this position in the successive seasons, or equally well by an outward impulsion of a current of air, or because the appropriate material successively catches fire, as the former fails, or again from the beginning, this particular form of revolution may have been assigned to these stars, so that they move in a kind of spiral. For all these and kindred explanations are not at variance with any clear-seen facts, If one always clings in such departments of inquiry to the possible and can refer each point to what it is in agreement with phenomena without fearing the slavish artifices of the astronomers. Okay, thank you for reading that for us today, Joshua. We welcome you back. You've been reading starting around line 91. Last week we took a break and we talked about the 12 fundamentals and now we're back to where we were two weeks ago on the issue of the size of the sun and other astronomical things that you see in the sky. Today's focus talks about several aspects of the sun and the moon and the other heavenly bodies, but I think the one that we want to spend the most time talking about is probably one of the more famous observations of Epicurus from the ancient world and a controversial one, and it is the issue of the size of the sun. 
because it is frequently stated that Epicurus thought that the sun was about the size of our feet, or as we might say today, about the size of a basketball, something like that. And I think that there's a lot more to the story than that, which we will go into today. So with that just very general observation, the size of the sun is as it appears to be, is the way that it is often summarized that Epicurus said. There's no doubt he did not state a particular distance or length in any kind of measuring unit. Of course, we would say today miles, kilometers, whatever. He did not use a measuring unit, but instead summarized it as it appears to be. And so that's what we want to talk about today is what we make of that formulation. So welcome back, Joshua. Any place you'd like to start with that? Uh, well, thank you. First of all, it's it's good to be back. I missed two weeks, but back to the normal schedule here. And you're, I think you're absolutely right to say this is one of the more intriguing claims that Epicurus makes and certainly one of the more controversial. You would think that his claim that, uh, you know, pleasure is the end of life would be more controversial. But in fact, what we often see in argumentation is while there's the main point to be argued with, as soon as the person you're arguing with makes a misstep or speaks wrongly about a thing, there's a tendency to cling to this one to this one thing as if arguing about that is going to bring down the whole system. So this argument that Epicurus thought that the sun was about a foot in length comes down to us from Cicero, of course, uh, who had every interest in thinking that Epicurus was totally wrong and totally out to lunch on this issue. And I don't think that when we read the Torquatus material, I don't think when we went through that, I don't think we talked about what Cicero said about Epicurus and the size of the sun. That wasn't really our focus then, but this is our total focus now. And so I think it will be important to keep in mind as we go through this, a particular essay that has been written fairly recently in a collection of essays that was published in February of this year. And it's an article by an academic named T.H.M. Geller-Goad on Lucretius and the Size of the Sun. And this article was published, as I said, in February in a book called Epicurus in Rome, Philosophical Perspectives in the Ciceronian Age. So Cicero is very much at the heart of the conversation here. And what we need to determine today, Cassius and Martin, is whether we think that Cicero, in his interpretation of Epicurus in this passage, is completely wrong. So let me gather my thoughts, and I'll turn it back over to, to one of you two. Okay. As we begin to dig into it, what's st stated in this first paragraph here that we've been reading about 91 is not just the assertion that it is the size it appears to be, but as usual, he includes uh, at least a little bit of his reasoning. And we can also refer over to Lucretius in book five, starting around line 564, for a more extended discussion of the reasons that he came to this conclusion. But first of all, it's probably worth pointing out as a basis that he doesn't just take the position that the size of the sun is as it is to be. He obviously has reasons and gives those reasons to us for that observation. In this letter to Herodotus, what he says is, for so too fires on earth when looked at from a distance seem to the senses. And then he says we need to pay attention to clear visions. That issue is developed significantly further in Lucretius um, because in 564 he says, 
for from whatsoever distances fires can throw us their light and breathe their warm heat upon our limbs, they lose nothing of the body of their flames because of the interspaces. Their fire is no whit shrunken to the sight. And this first point about the way light travels over distance seems to be that fires, light at a distance doesn't seem to recede and get quite as small as things that are not giving up light. So that there's something that Epicurus is observing here about the way optically we observe sources of light at a distance that seems to us to change what we'd expect in terms of how far they are away. And so he says in 585, the fires of heaven that you see from earth, inasmuch as all fires that we see on earth, so long as their twinkling light is clear, so long as their blaze is perceived, are seen to change their size only in some very small degree, greater or less, the further they are away. So he's saying that that observation about sources of light needs to be considered into the the size of the sun. And there's also an observation, I think it's in the same area here somewhere, about how things at a distance, as we've talked about many times in terms of the tower that looks round and is really square at a distance, over longer distances, things become more fuzzy and less distinct. And Epicurus is observing both as to the sun and I guess as to the moon as well, when you look up at, depending on the nighttime sky, that the sun and the moon both appear to be very sharp, which is not what we observe here on Earth. The further things are away, they become less distinct. So that also is a phenomenon that he's observing, that our senses are processing what we see in a way that is not quite the same, that if we apply the rules of what we see here on Earth, we would conclude that maybe these things are not quite as far away as they might otherwise be thought to. And if they aren't that far away, then we have to consider what that means as to their size. So that's kind of the direction we're going in. But maybe the important point to, again, remember, is that he's not taking a position on miles, kilometers, whatever, as to how big the sun is. But his conclusion is stated not in terms of a particular measurement, but the standard of measurement as opposed to a conclusion about the measurement. The standard of measurement being that it is what it appears to be. Well, there's actually a slight problem there, too, isn't there? Because what the language of the text uh, in translation says here is the size of the sun and of the moon and the other stars is for us what it appears to be. Mm -hmm. So this Mm -hmm. is a problematic distinction. When he says the size of the sun is to us what it appears to be, this is, I think, a fairly obvious point. And you made the point with the tower. You could just as easily say about a tower that the size of the tower from far away is to us what it appears to be. But when you actually Mm -hmm. get up close to the tower, you can see that the size of the tower is different from what maybe you first thought it was. So here's the major point. You've got what the sun looks like to us from our position on Earth. And then you've got this separate thing, which is the absolute size of the sun or the size of the sun relative to itself. And the problem with the sun and with the moon and with the stars, it's a problem we don't have with the tower. The problem with the sun and the moon and the stars is we can't get closer to them. Or Epicurus in the third century BC couldn't get any closer to the sun to determine, you know, when you walk up to the tower, obviously it, it 
air quotes, gets bigger. It doesn't actually get bigger. You're just seeing it in a scale relative to itself rather than relative to yourself at a distance from it. And with the sun, we can't get closer to it in the third century. And so there is no other frame of reference. There's no other angle that our, that our senses can get a hold of here. And we can't see it close up to see how big it really is. And it's at that point that Epicurus starts reaching for other frames of reference. And he's got this issue of the, of the fire and whether the fire looks the same close up or far away. He's got this issue of the clarity of the object seen far away, and that tells you something about its size. The fundamental problem here, from Epicurus's point of view, is at the most basic level, the size of the sun cannot be known to it because we, we can't measure it and we can't get close enough to appreciate its changing scale as we get close and move further away. We're basically tethered in the third or fourth century BC. We're tethered to the earth, no matter how far east you go, no matter how far west you go, no matter how far north or south you go. At no point do you really get close enough or far enough away to appreciably change the scale of the sun to our appearance. And it's based on that that our senses cannot go far enough to get us close enough or to go far enough away to appreciate a change in scale. And so if you're going to take the position that Epicurus takes, which is that our senses are how we know what is true about the real world, not the astronomer or the astrology, the astronomy, sorry, or the astrology of his predecessors and contemporaries, but human sensation. If you're going to take that view, as he certainly does, then it's simply not possible to know how big the sun is. And at no point in any Epicurean text does Epicurus or any of his successors make the claim that Cicero makes that the sun is a foot in diameter. So that is, I think, where we need to start the approach here, is that there's the, what the size of the sun appears to be to us, and then what the size of the sun is absolutely or objectively in itself. And we can't bridge that gap. There's no way to do that. And so now we have to argue by other frames of reference, and necessarily they will be less accurate. Joshua, you've used a word in what you just said several times that I think is extremely useful to talk about. And we could get pretty theoretical and sort of reductionist here in our discussion if we wished to, and, and that's probably not productive. But I heard you use over and over the word scale. And I think we could focus on that for a few minutes productively because I think we were talking about, I, I guess you could go to some website, Wikipedia, whatever, and you can get a measurement of the, the sun using modern technology. But it will all be in terms of some kind of scale, in terms of miles or kilometers or whatever. But what is a mile or a kilometer? <laughs> you know, those things are, you know, we have that meter. It, it, at one point I was reading, used to read, it's probably wrong. Doesn't a meter, there's some standard meter in Paris or something like that that was set out sometime. I bet you know some history there. That, is that correct, that a meter was just a consensus uh, based on a standard that was arbitrarily set, right? Well, that's quite a complex tale. And right now, I think the meter or the kilometer has something to do with the circumference of the Earth at the equator, it's, it's a, one, a kilometer is one second of one minute of one degree of circumference at the Earth's equator or something like that. So even here, the kilometer and the meter are defined in terms of the circumference of the Earth. No, no, so, that is outdated. 
since long it has been uh, defined uh, based on atomic physics so we have this as a multiple uh, uh, let me find this okay yeah go ahead I, I, let me give you one more example here which is probably also outdated by now thomas jefferson came up with an idea for a metric system and proposed it to the british and they together proposed it to the french but they couldn't get the french to agree to his system thomas jefferson wanted to use the foot as the basis of the metric system and he wanted the foot to be defined as the length of a pendulum whose arc distance is one second or something like that and so it takes one second for the pendulum to swing the length of the pendulum now will be a foot in length and that was his proposal and so it was at that point that the french decided okay no we're not going to do that we're going to go measure the circumference of the earth but Martin, you're saying that's outdated, and I, I trust you implicitly. And yes, but, but I, I can. Uh, it has become more complicated since the time I studied this, so I better look it up in detail, and then we. Sort of like how a, I think a calorie is a measurement of how much heat it takes to raise the temperature of an ounce of water, something like that, um, or a milliliter of water, or whatever it happens to be. So measurements are always defined in relation to other measurements until finally you get to a point where the, you have a measurement that is tied to something in nature um, that is thought to be constant. Constant, repeatable, <laughs> verifiable. It seems to me those are the terms there is that what people are looking for is something that they can with confidence go back to over and over and it's the same uh, as a standard. And I was hoping somebody would comment on. I thought somebody. I thought there was some rod in Paris that Napoleon came up with or something as a standard of what a meter was. I'll have to listen. That is part of the history. They'll have these brass yeah. rods, and this yeah. is the length. The problem with that is that if you use metal for this uh, for this rod, then you have thermal expansion, and so when it gets hot, mm -hmm. the rod will actually get bigger, and when it gets cold, it will actually get smaller. And well, this this conversation just demonstrates how difficult it is to really measure things. Difficult to measure. But the point is that there is no absolute natural standard. We can select something in nature that is repeatable and use it as our standard. But I'm thinking that this is really no different than using dollars versus euros versus pounds sterling. We come up as humans with a standard of measurement that means something to us. And then we use that for our transaction from day to yeah. day. And historically, and, that thing would have been the human foot. <laughs> right, so every, right. every person has a different length of their foot. And so you know, if, if we're building a house together and my foot's bigger than yours, then we're going to have some problems in the mm -hmm. end result. And let me throw this part into the mix as well. Why are we concerned about this repeatability? Why do we want something that everybody can go to and, and compare and come up with the same result? One of the reasons we want that is because, like it or not, there are people in this world who will shave the edge off a coin. They will put their thumb on the scale. They will manipulate the positions that they take to suit their own purposes, even in philosophy. And so you want something that tries to remove as much as possible the possibility of corruption, the possibility of slanting the result or biasing the result. 
You want something that's as uniform as possible to serve as your standard. You're absolutely so right. Yeah. And and what Thomas Jefferson really wanted was for commerce to be done in square volume. So he wanted um, instead of like a round wine bottle, you would have a square bottle. And that way, any farmer who went into town to trade, all he needed was a ruler and he could tell whether or not the merchant was trying to cheat him. So you're absolutely right. This is the problem. I think it was Isaac Newton who was given some uh, sort of notional post as he was put in charge of the coinage, but it was really an excuse for the British government to give him money without having him actually do anything. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. He, he apparently took it quite seriously. And it was because of him that they started putting edged. What, what would the word be? If you look at the side of like a dime, for example, an American dime, it's it's got these ridges etched into it. And the point mm-hmm. of that when when the money was made of actual precious metal was that you could tell just by looking at the side whether someone had clipped some off mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that that, you know, factory edge, as it were, would be missing. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. And of course, we're recording this on July the 3rd of 2022. And one of the anecdotes of our lives in July of 2022 is that the price of gasoline has gone through the roof. And do I understand correctly that, you know, you've seen all these pictures of these old gas stations from 100 years ago, or whatever. And at the top of the gas pumps, they had a transparent I guess, glass tank. Is my understanding correct that what they used to do was pump the gasoline into that clear tank so that you could see the amount that you were getting? And then that's what was discharged into your car. But that the purpose of that clear tank was to allow you to verify that you were getting basically what you were paying for. Joshua, do you know what I'm talking about there? Is that my totally off base? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they would pump the gas into the clear tank. They, You know, if you tell them I want 10 gallons, they'd pump it up to the 10 gallon line, or maybe they'd do the five gallon line twice, whatever it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And then once you had both, you know, agreed and looked at it and made sure you got the right amount, then it would flush into your tank, into your car. Mm-hmm. In ancient Greece, they had a problem with their their courts of law, because if you've got a prosecutor and a, a defense attorney, to use modern language, and the prosecution and the defense are allowed equal time. Now you need to be able to measure what it means to have equal time. And so they used some kind of, I can't remember what the Greek word was, but they used water. So you'd have this water tank, which would have uh, an allotment for how long you could speak. And then they'd pull the plug and you'd start talking. And then when it ran out, you had to stop talking. Well, without short-circuiting our discussion today, I really do think that's the direction we're going in here. And the lesson to be taken from a lot of this discussion that we're having is that the important thing to Epicurus was to emphasize that whatever size the sun is, you get it by observing it through your senses. The appearances, again, the word appearance can sometimes, we have a negative, it has negative um, connotations to the word appearance because you always think, well, the appearance can be wrong. And of course, the appearance can be wrong. But nevertheless, it is the appearance, it is, it is your sense observation and sense testing of what you're observing that is the basis. It's not some arbitrary, you can stand here and say, like some people say about the Bible, that's God said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> From the Bible. Yeah, that sells it. You could say the sun is 10,000 miles 
in diameter. You can use any form of measurement you want and be very dogmatic about it. It's, it's X, Y, Z in length or in diameter or in, or in volume. But those kind of assertions are based on coming up with a scale of measurement. And the scales of measurement we select using the senses and deciding what's the best way to measure something. And so to sort of begin to cite some of the specifics of the geller Goad article, it was only recently published, so obviously we only recently discovered it, but we only, I think several of us only read it within the last couple of weeks. He does a very, very good job of summarizing the background of the issue and reaches some conclusions of his own about how the Epicureans continued to use this formulation. The same formulation is in Lucretius for several hundred years later from when Epicurus first came up with it and without a whole lot of change in it. And the Epicureans indeed saw this as, as serving a couple of different purposes. We've been talking about it in terms of emphasizing the fact that the senses are the basis of Epicurean reasoning. And when you really carry that out to its logical conclusion, it becomes, as, as Geller Goad says, a, a sort of litmus test or a shibboleth is a word he uses as well. So Geller Goad is commenting that the Epicureans were using this formulation for numbers of purposes, including just sort of an in-your-face statement that if you're going to understand Epicurean philosophy, you've got to understand that the senses are ultimately at the root of all of our efforts to determine what the truth is. And it's been the presumption of the whole letter to Pythocles that where you don't have enough information to really be sure of what a single right answer is, you have to keep your mind open to various possibilities and you don't select among those possibilities only one of them unless you can be sure which is correct. And due to the nature of our inability to get to the sun and to get to the moon, we cannot be sure. So it becomes of primary importance not to take a particular position on exactly the size of those objects. But it's more important to emphasize the method of analysis, which is comparing what we observe and analyzing what we observe. Then we're going back to the senses as the basis for the, for the whole discussion. There's two points I have to make, and I think you've touched on one of them, which is this idea that when you can't settle in your mind with any kind of confidence what the explanation for a uh, result or effect is, if you can't figure out the cause, it's sufficient to propose a number of different causes uh, or explanations. And we won't get to it today, but I think later on in this letter, there is a passage on eclipses. Am I right about that? Has, have you read farther ahead? I believe that there is more on eclipses yet. Yes. yes. Okay. And so the reason I bring that up now is because one of the explanations that he uses for an eclipse is the interposition of the earth between the sun and the moon. That would explain the lunar eclipse in his view. That really only makes any amount of sense if the scale of the moon and the sun is relative to that of the earth. And so if we're talking about something that is a foot in diameter, then that explanation for an eclipse just simply doesn't work. So part of this idea that we're going to remain uncertain about a thing because we can't be sure or confident in our analysis, embedded in that is this idea that one of the explanations for eclipses could be that the sun and the moon 
are much bigger than they appear to us, big enough to approximate the scale of the Earth, and that the interposition of the moon between the Earth and the sun is how we get solar eclipses, and the interposition of the Earth between the moon and the sun is how we get lunar eclipses. That analysis only makes sense if the sun and the moon are much bigger than what they appear to us. And so he's clearly here, and like I said, we haven't gotten that far, but he's clearly here allowing for the possibility um, that the sun and the moon are much bigger than they appear to us, which is what he says in the first line here. In reality, it is either greater than what we see or less than what we see or the same size. We simply can't know. That's the main point. The second main point that I want to articulate on this issue of the size of the sun is that while we can't get any closer to the sun, we can set things against the sun to have another frame of reference. Greece has two main features. It's got a lot of mountains and it's got a lot of coastline. And it was a maritime civilization, of course. Epicurus himself grew up on an island. And so one thing you have is a lot of ships. And so these triremes, if you were to set a trireme on the horizon against the setting sun, and the setting sun is bigger than the trireme, what does that tell you? That the sun at, at, at minimum is now, you could say, bigger than a trireme. Okay, and then I mentioned that Greece is very mountainous. So if the sun sets over a distant mountain, and you know how big the mountain is, and the mountain doesn't eclipse the sun, then you know the sun is bigger than that mountain. And the problem in Epicurus's point of view is that we can only carry that so far. We can't just set everything against the sun. You know, you can set the moon against the sun, but without knowing the size of the moon, that doesn't get you very far either. So we keep circling back to this fundamental problem, which is that we simply cannot get close enough to either of these two bodies in the third century BC to have any certainty about our conclusion, to have any confidence about our conclusion. Those are the two main points I really wanted to get mm -hmm. to. But. And as you concluded it that way, I was going to say the thing that we have confidence in about our conclusions is that it doesn't make any sense to come up with our calculations of the truth on anything other than the evidence we get from the senses. That's the ultimate test. And that conclusion is the starting point of everything else, even, even when we cannot extend it in every direction as far as we'd like to extend it, we still know that the only hope we have of confidence in anything is going to come from reproducible evidence that is brought to us through the senses. So those points you just made are hugely important. And one of the reasons this whole issue, we've said it before, and I'll say it again right now, one of the reasons this issue is so important positively is the reasons you've just stated to affirm the basis for proper reasoning from a sort of a negative or from a confrontational point of view. It's important for us to understand this because this is something that's used against Epicurus to ridicule him, to say, ha ha, you should not pay attention to anything Epicurus said because he thought the sun was no bare foot. And anybody so ridiculously stupid to take a position like that obviously has nothing important to say about anything. So you should just ignore everything else he said. And so, and, and you know, every time somebody makes an argument like that, too, you, you have to what they're really saying is that this person is so stupid that he cannot even observe the things that we ourselves observed. And, and that's what you were just talking about, Joshua. You see the sun setting behind a mountain. You see the sun or the moon in comparison to some object at a distance that it looks to be bigger than this object, which which you know because you've been to this mountain or you've seen this ship, is is very, very large. And so you know that the sun has to be larger than those 
Um, so, so why would you ever take the position that, that could be that it was no bigger than your foot? And, and that's just a, just as you always should do when you're dealing with lawyers. You need to be very suspicious of what their biases and motives are about what they're arguing. And, and Cicero is just trying to make these positions look ridiculous because he wants to make everything in Epicurean philosophy ridiculous. He doesn't give a balanced presentation of, of both sides of the argument. So understanding this issue, atomism, there's all sorts of issues in Epicurean physics that are very helpful today. Um, and this one doesn't get as much attention probably because people say it's just a point where he was wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. Let's just forget it. But I don't think that's the right attitude towards the size of the sun. It should not be written off as a mistake. It needs to be studied to understand the process. And and that's, again, I can't say enough good things about this article by Mr. Geller Goad, because I, he talks about the history of people arguing about this. And we've talked about this issue in years past before this article came out. And it's a relatively easy thing to do to drill down in the direction that he's drilled here. But he just does a very, very good job of marshalling the evidence and then carrying it to what I think is the right conclusion. You can sort of take this point and conclude that, oh yeah, he's just reminding us that it's important to use the census as the basis for our conclusions, and you can sort of stop there. But especially in these last sections of his article, he's going further, and I think correctly, by saying that th this is something that they were using as, to some extent, a litmus test uh, or a method of teaching the essence of the Epicurean epistemology is that you, you don't back down on something like this, even though it sounds funny the way you say it. And of course, that's something that comes about repeatedly in Epicurean philosophy, such as discussing gods. You find that Epicurus had a very different perspective on the meaning of that term and the act. So you, you do have to always be sure that you're following closely what his definitions are. And of course, Cicero complains about that uh, a number of times, I think, that that Epicurus uses words in non-standard ways. Martin, we haven't heard too much from you today so far. What do you think? Yes, I mean, so far, I pretty much agree what every, anything would have heard uh, on this one. So, and I have nothing to add at this point. I know, again, in your own occupation, employing science more so than most of us ever get near doing, that it is really important to have measurements that you can reproduce and that you can have confidence in. But the issue of the fact that these measurements are ultimately arbitrary, that in terms of the unit of measure, the language, this, the way we express the standard, I think it's probably fair to say it all does come back to that issue, the word that Joshua used earlier, scale. Your ultimate measurements are comparisons of one thing to another. Is that something that you think is accurately stated, or would you state it a different way? No, it's, it's correct. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. I can, because I mentioned it, I was looking it up. So uh, so the current, uh, uh, the way this has been currently done is, no? so that the meter is a derived unit, and uh, what, what it fundamentally starts of it, that meanwhile, the speed of light has been defined. So this is, so, so the, the value for that one is, uh, then, uh, and in this definition, you have the units meter per second already. So it sounds a bit circular, but when you have it, everything lined up, it's not circular. So that means the speed of light is defined as, or oh, I pronounced it correctly in English. So that's 299,792,458 meters per second. And then the de definition of a second is, that is uh, 
9,192,631,777 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. So this is definitely something where you need to have a pretty much good laboratory to reproduce this basic definition. What do we do in practice? We buy clocks which have been calibrated through a chain of standards back to a, uh, to an NISD laboratory or another laboratory, which has this uh, method of reproducing uh, the, the second uh, based on this definition, and you then uh, have these calibrated clocks. Now, so, so here we do not use anything, uh, we, although in practice we won't use these atomic clocks. I think on some satellites, to really have the, the, the actual time, they may have atomic clocks on board, where they really go back to this definition to, uh, uh, to do that. And now that we have the speed of light defined in meters per second, and we have a de definition of the second, then on top of that comes the definition of the meter as the length of the path traveled by electromagnetic radiation in a vacuum during a time interval of two, the one of 299,792,458 of a second. 458. Yeah, of course, the leading number, it's just one, two, uh, one three hundred millions, roughly, né? so of, of a second, that, that path where, where this one has traveled. And again, to, to, to measure at this way, you need laboratory equipment to do that. So in practice, then you again buy calibrated standards, which come from a, a chain of standards referenced back to some laboratory, which can reproduce this standard based on the definition. You know, in that last sentence or so, you used the word measure, Martin, and that reminds me of a point that was new to me when I first read the DeWitt book, and this is probably a pretty big point to include in this podcast today, is that it, it's my understanding that this word canon, when we talk about canonical or canon of truth is the epistemological work of Epicurus, that that word canon is equivalent of standard, but it's in the sense of being a ruler or straight edge, or something that you're comparing to, it's not necessarily a list of principles. It's not a, this goes back to our discussion from last week, Martin, a little bit. The canon of truth is not necessarily, from Epicurus's point of view, a list of conclusions about particular subjects. It's more a discussion of the method of measuring and the method of proceeding towards finding what you're going to consider to be your conclusion. So that the, what you've just been talking about in terms of coming up with these units of measurement, the implication is always there that it's you who are deciding what unit of measure you want to go by, whether it's a meter or a yard or a foot or whatever other measurement you want to use. It's just that in the end, once you've selected the measure, then you've got to apply it. And when you define a measure down so precisely scientifically, you define the meter in that way, you're still just at your starting point. What are you going to use that meter for? How are you going to apply that meter? Uh, just the fact that a meter is a particular length is of not much significance on its own. It's a question of what it is you're measuring. I think DeWitt calls it the issue of confusing the bricks of the wall versus the, the ruler or the straight edge or the other measuring tools that you use to construct a wall that is uniform and straight and stands up and so forth. Well, thank you, Martin, first of all, for uh, for correcting me um, on the reference size of the meter. That's good to know. And there are two other, I guess, points I'd like to get in here, one of them having to do 
with culture and one of them having to do with methods of instruction. And I think we get on the subject of methods of instruction, this comes almost entirely from this Geller Goad article that we've been talking about. And on culture, I think he touches on it, and I might just like to take it a little bit farther. So first of all, as to methods of instruction, he makes the argument in this essay that we've been talking about on Lucretius and the size of the sun, that by the time you've been reading Lucretius's long-form didactic poem on Epicurean philosophy, you get to this point where he makes the claim that the size of the sun is to us as it appears and so forth. And the argument that Geller Goad makes here is that this presents what he calls a didactic challenge to Lucretius's readers. And that, okay, you've gotten this far through the poem, and now you read something that makes you stop and kind of do a double take here. Because now, you know, maybe you've read this far and you're with him so far. Okay, you've understood about nothing can be created out of nothing, and you're acquainted with some of the problems with religion and you've grasped atomism and the existence of atoms and void. And you've gotten to this point now, and he makes this claim about something that is apparent to all of us, which is the heavenly bodies. We all see them. This is one of uh, humanity's, I, I, hate, I hesitate to use the word constants again, but this is the common experience of, of everyone, essentially, um, everyone with sight. And he makes the point in this article that a reader who has gotten this far will read this sentence. It's kind of like the plague at the very end of the book. You'll read this, and then you'll sort of stop and, and flip back a little bit and go, what, did I miss something here? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we got to this point, because he's telling me that the size of the sun is to us as it appears. And so it's going to make you go back then to what you've already thought that you learned and review the material. That's a point that Geller Goad makes, the didactic argument about this size of the sun issue. The other argument he makes is that this is a shibboleth among Epicureans, and I want to expand on that point, because prior to Epicurus, you do have a Greek named Anaxagoras, and I've talked about him before on the podcast, who does give a approximate measurement of the size of the sun. He says that the sun is a mass of blazing metal larger than the Peloponnese. Now, that is, I guess, interesting in itself and tells you something about the status of astronomy at the time, although Anaxagoras was something of an outlier on that point. In fact, he was more than something of an outlier. It was partially because of his astronomical claim, which impinge so greatly, they encroach so greatly on the claims that are made by religion at the time. Anaxagoras was sentenced to death, condemned to die, by the leaders of the city-state of Athens. And it was only by fleeing from Athens to Lampsacus that Anaxagoras was able to preserve his life. And then a generation after Anaxagoras, you have Socrates, who again is accused of impiety and again is condemned to die. And then about a generation, I think, after Socrates, you have Epicurus. So Epicurus is coming onto the scene now, and he knows that he's making claims that are countercultural that are abhorrent to the authorities that have power, at least over his body and over his ability to go on living. And it might occur to him at this point that dovetailing with this argument about this size of the sun issue being a shibboleth among Epicureans, it might occur to him that this is a way to express his opinions about astronomy 
in a way that his students will understand, but in a way that will not be an overt threat to the established authority and their orthodoxy. And so Epicurus, who does not get sentenced to death or exile, but in many ways is really more subversive than either Socrates or Anaxagoras to the Athenian city-state and indeed to the authorities who come after in the millennium to follow. So I don't know whether I've articulated my point very well here, but this idea that it's better to be mocked than killed uh, may have had some influence here. Cassius, I'm curious how you in particular would take that line of thinking, because I know it's quite important to you to have it understood that Epicurus said what he meant and meant what he said. And yet on this, if you're going to accept that the size of the sun issue becomes a shibboleth for Epicureans and that they continue to say this knowing, knowing that people outside of Epicureanism are going to hear this and come to exactly the wrong conclusion, that does present something of a problem, I would think. But I'd I'd be curious to know your uh, opinion on that. I think you've articulated it very well, Joshua. And I do think that, you know, we talked about this on the forum a little bit recently. It's almost like the issue of talking favorably about pigs as an example and a, as a slogan or a mascot for Epicurean philosophy. I think you expressed all that very well. I didn't have any problem with what I was hearing. And that's why it's so good to have you back on the podcast because you, you, those stories and you've made the point before. And I think maybe Geller Goad makes it that, for example, the plague of Athens scenario in book six of Lucretius that closes the book, it closes without giving you a sort of a summary conclusion about what you're supposed to think. It it closes with a shocking example from real life that you then are implicitly challenged to analyze in terms of what you've previously been told through the study of Epicurean philosophy. And that's what this does in a sort of similar way. It challenges you to say, well, why in the world would he say something like this? What does he mean? And what direction is he going in? And for every 10 people who conclude that he's just an idiot and walk away, if he reaches several who say, this guy's too smart to have just said something obviously wrong. He's got to have a point behind what he's saying. Let's think about it and drill back down. And maybe we'll decide that meters and feet and miles and kilometers are really not handed to us from God on Mount Olympus or from Mount Ararat or wherever, or Mount, uh, oh, what's the what's the Ten Commandment Mountain? Not Ararat, but uh, Mount <laughs> Joshua uh, Mountain. You know, Martin. I've been I've been out of religion so long that <laughs> now you're now you're straining my memory here. Where, he came my, down from Mount. From, um, oh, I have to look this, this up. Now. This is embarrassing. Martin, you know what mountain it is, right? <laughs> I forgot as well. Too long. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot about the three of us is that we can't even recall the name of the mountain that the Ten Commandments. Are. Yeah, yeah. This is something I don't think religious people really get is how when you get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you just stop. You completely stop thinking in those terms. And and uh, there is no God shaped hole in my heart, because if there was, I probably would know the name of this mountain. That's some Mount Sinai. Is that Sinai, it? Mount Sinai. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the important thing is that the real important truths of life don't come down from Mount Sinai or Mount Olympus. They come through observation. 
And if saying that the size of the sun is as it appears to be serves as a sort of shocking challenge to a means of thought and leads you in the direction of understanding that ultimately this is the better course for observing nature, determining what's true and what's not, then it serves a very, very important point. These issues are example, and you've mentioned previously the saying that pleasure is the, the goal of life or the ultimate good. All of those things are challenges to conventional thinking that Epicurus seems to specialize in. And the people who end up appreciating Epicurus begin to see that there's a method behind his madness. You know, we've come to the end of a normal length episode, so we need to wrap up. I don't know that we spent a lot of time on the rest of the text from this week, but it's pretty much all on the same direction. Joshua, do you see anything else in the rest of the text that you wanted to talk about? Oh, no, I don't think we'll get to it today. I do need to find out what this, in the second paragraph of 92, there seems to be a lacunae. Mm-hmm. So I got to find out about that. There must be some corruption in the text, mm-hmm. um, which will be important mm-hmm. as to how we actually read that line, because I don't know if the last part of that line relates to the first part. So that mm-hmm. will be something for us to look into probably before we get to this section. Yeah, and we can come back to that next week, too, because the whole letter is talking about these astronomical, celestial, uh, atmospheric issues. And I think next week we continue to talk about the moon and reflected light and so forth. So we've got the whole rest of the letter. We'll be able to work in the issues that we remember later on. But let's begin wrapping up for today. Martin, anything else you'd like to add for today? Uh, No, nothing to add. Okay. And Joshua, anything else? I do have something. And I first have to say it's great to be back. I've already said that, but I've enjoyed this conversation. We've been talking about this issue of the size of the sun for a long time, which brings me to my next point, which is that this article or essay by THM Geller Goad is absolutely for me the last word on the subject or the best word on the subject, maybe is how I should put that. And the thing for me that brings this issue altogether is that during the Renaissance, you've got another guy who I've talked about quite a lot, Giordano Bruno, who, unlike most of his contemporaries, reads Lucretius and is convinced by him, who finds this idea of a universe that is infinite and eternal and made of atoms and void, and that there are other worlds like ours that are inhabited. He absolutely falls for it. And Like Anaxagoras before Epicurus, he comes to an end that is one that Epicurus managed to avoid. And I think it's partially because, according to his captors even, Giordano Bruno was unwilling to recant his position. He was unwilling to go against anything he said. He was questioned, I think, for nine years, if I have that right. Nine years he was imprisoned and repeatedly questioned on his opinions about the universe, most of which have turned out to be correct, questioned by the church who ultimately killed him in the Campo di Fiori in Rome. He was burned at the stake because of issues like this one. And so for Epicurus to express this in the way that he expressed it, and for Geller Go to isolate this thread, this method of analyzing this as a shibboleth among Epicureans, a way of speaking to Epicureans, in a way that outsiders maybe won't understand and won't take on face value. The fruit of speaking frankly about some things, and I know Epicurus was fond of frank speech, but the fruit of frank speech under certain conditions is to come to an end like the end that Giordano Bruno came to when he was killed by the uh, Cardinal Bellarmino of the Catholic Church. 
And so, again, I just have to hammer home this article by THM Gellergoat is absolutely essential reading on the size of the sun. So that will be my closing statement. Yeah, and I'll echo that this article is really a very thorough, academically vetted presentation of the issue. It's one thing for those of us who are more casually into philosophy, who do the best we can, but we haven't gone through the rigors of getting advanced degrees in these issues. We don't have the time or the ability to go through and collect all the citations and read what people have previously said. And so this is a very valuable article. And that reminds me, I constantly talk on the forum about this article by Boris Nikolsky about some of the issues of types of pleasure. This is an article that I'm going to be keeping myself in the future to refer people to because it is such an important issue. And it's not just some random opinion from the peanut gallery. It's a, a well-cited, well-referenced discussion that comes to a very assertive conclusion about what's going on here. I really do think that at the very least, if you just read that Epicurus held that the size of the sun is about a foot or about the size of a basketball, and you walk away from Epicurus as a result of hearing that, then it really does serve as a as a test, a litmus test or a, a puzzle to work through that you've got to be able to get past things like that before you're going to understand or really get the benefit out of what Epicurus had to say. This is one of those areas everybody knows about atomism and the swerve and certain aspects of Epicurean physics. But this is one of those intersections of the physics and the ethics that's so important to understand that ultimately it's the senses. And although it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today to discuss whether pleasure and pain are senses or whether feelings are really the same as a sense or not, ultimately this is one of those areas that connects our ethics, which is based on the feeling of pleasure as we feel it ourselves with how physics also operates according to our observations. And that the ultimate standard for what we conclude to be true in physics comes from whether we can reproduce it and prove it through our uh, observations. And in ethics, it's the experience of pleasure and pain that is ultimately the standard what to do and what to avoid. So that word experience is very important. If you cannot experience it, if you cannot feel it, sense it, validate it through your personal faculties, then it's not really as real to you. It's not really real to you in the same way that something you do validate yourself is. Okay, we've gone on actually now a little bit long. So with that, let's go ahead and conclude for the day. We'll come back next week and we'll continue with the letter typically. So thanks very much and see you soon. Thanks and bye. Okay. Thank you.